0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Eyes on the Right. Our special guest this week is Corey Shockey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome, one and all. Lots to discuss this week, and however much bad luck you may feel that you had, please reflect that you probably did not have as bad a week as the Prime Minister of Great Britain. <laughs> But let's turn to a different part of the world for our first topic, because I would like to discuss Putin and Ukraine and martial law. He has declared martial law in the provinces that he illegally annexed just a few weeks ago. Corey, since the last time you joined us on Beg to Differ, you have actually visited Ukraine and met with Volodymyr Zelensky. So we would love to get the benefit of your views. Uh, I'd like you to explain to us, if you could, what this means about Putin declaring martial law in these provinces. Why is he doing that? What's the purpose? What does it signify?
1: I actually think it's a pretty worrisome sign because he's not in control of most of the territory of the four regions of Ukraine that Russia purportedly annexed. And if people are being governed, you don't have to declare martial law, right? Mm -hmm. So Putin's theory of the war that Ukraine isn't a separate nation and that uh, it's part of Russia and therefore Russia needs to control it. The fact that they had to declare martial law is by definition a failure of Putin's theory of the war. And it also speaks to the likelihood of an insurgency being fomented against Russian control from Ukrainians living in that area. The reason I say it's worrisome is because it's one more demonstration as the declarations of annexation of the four regions were, that Putin's actions are increasingly divorced from reality. Mm. You know, Russia's losing this war. And I think at least by March of next year, but probably by the end of this calendar year, Russia will have lost this war. And that Putin is refusing to acknowledge the losses and is instead making political declarations you know, writing checks that his military can't cash suggests that he may be either losing his grip on what's happening or willfully misrepresenting it.
0: Damon Linker, I'm going to bring you in here. One of, I guess, Putin's only hopes to turn the tide is if the leadership in the United States changes And uh, this week, we had word from Kevin McCarthy. If the Republicans take control in November, he would be the new Speaker of the House. And he has said that if they do indeed assume the majority, that the Republicans are no longer going to, as he put it, write a blank check to Ukraine, which is, of course, not what we've been doing. But in any event, we also have Scott Perry, of the hilariously named Freedom Caucus, who has announced that, again, if Republicans take control, that uh, he's going to conduct investigations into the Biden-Zelensky relationship
2: well well certainly the the uh the investigations are going to proliferate that's for sure uh no doubt about that it's going to become uh, a total circus <laughs> in washington for the next two years if republicans take control it'll be biden investigations morning noon and night as for supporting uh aid to ukraine i, I frankly think mccarthy's bluffing uh, this is sort of I mean, maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, but it sort of strikes me as the equivalent of someone in charge of the Democratic caucus leading into a midterm election back when the Democrats were very divided, say, about uh, the first Gulf War, or the Iraq War, and you know, promising to do what the kind of anti-war faction on the left wants in order to make sure that people show up to vote uh, in three weeks. The fact is that that former situation that I just described, where the Democrats were kind of divided between those who were in favor of some of our more hawkish foreign policies, and then there was a faction on the left uh, ever since the Vietnam War that was kind of skeptical of the use of American power as a kind of reflexive response, that now has flipped over to the Republicans. And it's the Republican Party that is very deeply divided over these issues. And so this is a a way of throwing a sop to, I think, the Trumpist faction of the party to make sure that they show up to vote for the midterms on November 8th. When push comes to shove, I believe and I very much hope that they'll have to make a stink about it. They'll maybe cut an appropriation by a few tens of billions of dollars to demonstrate that they're not giving Biden everything he asks for. But again, the party is divided and there are still a lot of people in the Republican Party, uh, especially the office holders, but even in polls, it's pretty divided. There's a lot of Republicans who still believe in a strong American defense and are in favor of our general policy toward Ukraine, even if they don't want to give Biden personal credit for it. So I, I don't envision an actual kind of like rejection of aid for Ukraine. We're going to let them hang out there now and not fulfill our promises and continue to give them the funding they need to fight Russia. So again, maybe, you know, maybe someone else on the podcast wants to say I'm being foolish and should be more concerned. But, you know, frankly, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. The Republicans are going to do what they're going to do. But I think that they're speaking from a position of deep division on this, not unified opposition.
0: Bill, I think the um, problem with Damon's analysis is that the entertainment wing of the Republican Party, the, the Fox News types and the Federalists and so forth, they're really beating the drums for Putin and against the war in Ukraine. And they tend to be the trendsetters in the way that the GOP moves because they move the viewers and then the viewers move. The politicians. So it is incredibly, incredibly worrisome. And I'd ask you to reflect on something else. The reversal that Damon described is almost perfect in the sense that, you know, I mean, I wrote a whole book about the left's too benign view of uh, communism back in the 70s and 80s. Not only did they think that American power should not be exercised uh, except in extreme circumstances, but they also had lots of very nice things to say about leftist and even communist regimes, uh, full of praise for Cuba. Some of them even praised the Khmer Rouge. And you're finding this kind of mirror image now you see on the right not only a reluctance to use American power, but a cheerleading for autocrats like Orban and like Putin, frankly. What's your sense of it?
3: Well, first of all, Mona, I think that's a wonderful pricey of your next book. <laughs> because you know, you have all of the reflexes and muscle memory. needed <laughs> need to do a great job. Uh, look, uh, I think The worry you've put on the table is a reasonable worry. But as it happens, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs just came out with its big annual survey of American attitudes on foreign policy. And the news for Ukraine is good. You have about two thirds of registered Republicans in favor of sustaining both economic and military assistance to Ukraine. And if there has been an anti-Ukraine drumbeat at the grassroots level over the, uh, led by leadership or what you call the entertainment wing of the Republican Party over the past three months, it hasn't yet had a measurable impact. That doesn't mean that it can't. Or that it won't. But it does mean that as of right now, the support for Ukraine is rock solid. I actually am more worried about the erosion of public opinion in Europe, which is facing some very dire consequences of the war, the embargo, the decoupling of Russian energy supplies, from both household and industrial needs, especially in Germany, but really throughout Western and Central Europe. I am not saying that time is on Putin's side. Don't misunderstand me. But I am saying that it's going to require statesmanship on the part of European leaders and forbearance on the part of European populaces in order to get through this winter and sustain the united front against putin i think that we'll probably get through this but the colder the winter the worse it's going to be you know that's not just true for freezing households but it's also true for economies that are very very dependent and have been for some time on cheap energy inputs from russia
0: linda the Russians have become pariahs for a lot of the world, certainly for Europe and, and for us. There are some nations, however, we'll get to China in our next segment, that have, uh, have been siding to some degree or other with Russia. Two in particular I'd like you to talk about, because a couple of weeks ago, Saudi Arabia announced that it was going to continue to limit oil drilling, therefore keeping the price high which is beneficial to Moscow and highly harmful to the United States, in particular to the Democratic Party facing the midterms. And also, you've had Iran sending these drones to Russia. I don't know that anybody would have thought that it would come to this, that the great Russian military, or so we thought, uh, would need to turn to Iran for spare parts. But that is what is indeed happened. I'd like to get your sense of how this should affect or does affect our relations with Saudi Arabia. And also, you know, there was talk about a revival of the nuclear deal with Iran when the Biden presidency began. Do you think this is the death knell for that?
4: I certainly hope so, Mona, if there is any silver lining in this horrible cloud that has uh, been cast over Ukraine in terms of the uh, use of Iranian drones, it is that it should at least awaken uh, the Europeans to the notion that they were very much behind with the United States and the Obama administration forging some sort of deal uh, with Iran to try to uh, stem Iran's nuclear ambition. And I think um, you and I would agree that uh, the deal that was uh, cast was not a good one and would uh, not likely have stopped Iran from moving to develop nuclear weapons. I do think that this Strange bedfellows combination of Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, doing things that help Russia is worrisome. And it shows that Mohammed bin Salman's peak at President Biden seems to know no limits. I mean, this is clearly a kind of personal affront to the Biden administration and to President Biden himself. And it seems to be very short-sighted in Saudi Arabia's own calculus. And, you know, Iran is still a huge threat to Saudi Arabia. And oh, by the way, if the United States sort of pulls back, decides we're not going to sell them weapons anymore, yeah, they could go to Russia to buy weapons, but we're seeing that those weapons don't uh, perform very well. And Saudi Arabia might want to think twice about that. And the fact is that the regime in Saudi Arabia has always been precarious, no less today than in the past. And so doing things that strengthen Iran, you know, just to get back at President Biden, it seems to me really foolhardy on the part of the Saudi regime. And I hope that MBS comes to his senses in terms of, you know, geostrategic issues and does not continue to do things to bolster Russia uh, and the price of oil uh, for Russia, you know, at a time when it really is not even in the uh, Saudi's own interests.
1: Can I express a slightly different view on that one? Of course. I agree with all of the description of how awful Saudi Arabia is. But I disagree on two slight points. The first is that I think the Biden administration actually misplayed this badly because this isn't the first time Saudi Arabia has refused a United States in treaty to raise oil output. They did it in the George W. Bush administration. They do it routinely because their entire economy depends on the price of oil. And so keeping oil market price at their minimum necessary levels really is standard Saudi policy. But I agree with Linda that there's so much animosity in the Biden administration and Saudi relationship right now that... The White House took it as a personal affront and the Saudis are gleefully, you know, feeding that narrative. But in fact, this is routine Saudi behavior. It's uh, for economic reasons. And I think if the Biden administration had said that, instead of saying, we need to review our policy and we may come down in a different place and... You know, you can either reduce reliance on Saudi energy production or you can indulge in this kind of spat with the Saudis, but I don't think you should do both simultaneously. And the Biden administration's not making the moves that would reduce American reliance on Saudi oil. So I think it's a little puzzling to me that they're feeding this fire.
0: Oh, that's a really good point. Um Also, Corey, I'd like you to comment, if you would, on these stories that have been running in the Washington Post about 500 retired U.S. military personnel, including generals and admirals, who, after their stints are over, are now selling their services to other countries. It's being presented as a kind of scandalous thing And I can understand that it is a problem if you do what Michael Flynn did, for example, and go to work for Russia. But tell me what I'm missing. Why is it a problem? For example, a lot of them seem to have done work for the United Arab Emirates. The UAE has recently joined the Abraham Accords. It seems like it's not a terrible international player. Is there something else here that we should all
1: understand about this? Well, I think there are three categories of retired military people working for foreign governments. And the most dangerous one is NSA employees using their technical skills to assist foreign governments in repression or in human rights violations. That's outrageous and ought to be prosecutable. A second category is high-ranking military people going to work for governments that are friendly to the United States, but not American allies. You know, all of the revelations in this seven-part Washington Post series that are amazing, and they should not have had to spend four years in litigation with the United States government to get that information if people are going to work for foreign governments, they ought to have to have that be public knowledge and, and be accountable for that. And the third category is a category like military people going to work for the Australian government purposely and as a direct impact of American government policy to transfer the technology to Australians that they will need for nuclear power submarines for example that's explicitly US government policy these are treaty allies again i believe that information should be public but i also think it should be encouraged rather than discouraged the other piece of the news is the 30 british fighter pilots who went to work for the government of china to teach air to air combat tactics that is How to Kill American Pilots. And the British government stomped on that very quickly. So I put that in the NSA employees helping the UAE category.
0: Okay, absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, I would just... Clarify, you said helping the Australians with nuclear-powered submarines. I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. These are not nuclear missile submarines. That we would not do and is forbidden.
1: Correct? Uh, Well, uh, there's a fair amount of nuclear technology transfer to the British. And given the status of Australia as a treaty ally, I could see the administration and Congress agreeing to that explicit tech transfer. But no, that's not where we are now. Really? To, to submarines that would fire nuclear missiles? I could see if China continues to be such a threat to Australia, I could see nuclear sharing arrangements with Australia of the kind the United States has with Italy, the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium. So I could see that eventually. But no, that's <laughs> not where we are.
0: All right. Let us now turn to China. This week was the 20th National Party Congress in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. Xi Jinping uh, gave a two-hour long address in which I think he referred to their democracy something like 23 different times. But of course, they have the very opposite of a democracy, and they have engaged under Xi Jinping in ever more repressive and uh, aggressive behavior, repressive domestically and uh, aggressive internationally, and including crushing Hong Kong's liberty, though they had promised by treaty that there would be one nation, two systems. That's, that's a dead letter. I um, would like to start here this time with Damon, the Chinese have stated, and, th- and this comes up constantly, they claim the Communist Party is the author of all good things in the life of the Chinese. But one thing that strikes me as a little odd is that they keep talking about how they're going to fight corruption. First of all, they acknowledge corruption is a problem. But second, how can you possibly fight corruption? There is no political competition in the country and no free press.
2: Yeah, that's a good puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is uh, a kind of testament to uh, the fact that democracy, the rule of law, uh, the need to fight corruption, these kind of ideals that... The United States has, at least until very recently, kind of upheld as standards that we believe are very important and try to spread around the world that writes down still to today, you know, an outright dictatorship like China uh, still feels like it has to try to justify itself in exactly those terms. So it's not that they say... No, we hate democracy, and you know, rule of law is just for uh, suckers. And uh, you know, what's corruption? It's okay if, as long as it's in the name of the people. Mm-hmm. They actually claim that they aren't corrupt and they're fighting corruption, and they believe in the rule of law and they are a democracy. So, that's the the weird kind of looking glass world that we find ourselves in. Everyone claims to be these things. It's just that we have to try to, to determine which ones are lying. But I mean, when it comes to China, and I'm very glad Corey is here today to, to talk through some of this. I mean, I am seriously worried by far more than I have been really in my adult life. I mean, I grew up, I was a teenager in the in the 1980s. And so I remember, I'm old enough to actually remember living through that last decade of the Cold War. And I worried like a lot of people about nuclear war. I saw the day after and it was in the air very much in the 80s. I think my mostly because of people who were agitated about Reagan's more aggressive stance toward the Soviet Union uh, after uh, some years where it seemed like things were thawing out with detente and so forth. But uh, since then, yeah, you know, um, 9-11, very scary. The threat of, you know, Islamic terrorists wielding weapons of mass destruction was certainly very risky, dangerous, scary scenario. Blowing up a, you know, an unmarked van with a small nuke in it in the middle of Midtown Manhattan for a few years seemed like a possible scenario that we needed to be scared about. But really, it, I mean, I think I sort of thought at the time, and that led to some of my scary Skepticism about some of how the war on terror was waged, but it didn't rise to the level of a of a threat that you have from a major nation state, especially one that controls uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I am truly alarmed by the combination of Russia's war in Ukraine and. Our relationship with China at this point. I mean, if I'm Xi Jinping and I've told myself, we're going to take Taiwan on my watch, this is going to happen. But he's not in too much of a hurry. But now he sees that we're embroiled in Eastern Europe and giving Ukraine a lot of our stockpile of weapons. Does he conclude within the next, you know, year at some point while this is still going on? You know, if I'm going to do this, I should do it now because they're distracted. They don't have uh, the weaponry, the material to provide as formidable of a defense of Taiwan as they would have Say four years ago, and they might four years from now, and that I think makes the present moment extremely risky. And actually, if I might pose to Corey the same question I posed in a similar conversation with Eric Edelman when he was on—I uh, I guess about six weeks ago—and that is this question of our, our weapons. I mean, I don't know anything about this directly; it's not my area of expertise at all. But I mean, do you, Corey? Are you concerned if if China made a move against Taiwan. I realize that the kinds of weapons we're sending to Ukraine are quite different than the kinds of things we'd have to use to try to help Taiwan to protect itself against an amphibious assault uh, across the straits. But how depleted are we and how
1: much should we be worried about this and how long is it going to take to build things back? Those are great questions all. The problem is severe. You're right to be worried. You shouldn't be worried because of the weapons we're sending to Ukraine. You should be worried that both the Congress and the Defense Department have, for 15 years, tolerated a planning construct in which we assumed we would only fight short, sharp wars. And, you know, a war with China is unlikely to be an eight-day war, and we'd be out of ammunition. (laughs) And so the weapons transfers to Ukraine are illustrative of a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is the game of chicken that's been going on between the Defense Department and Congress, where what is needed is robust, long-term contracts in place by the Defense Department to buy weapons and ammunition and fill up the storehouse. And DOD has not requested that. And Congress, to their credit, will make add ons year after year. But the game of chicken of who's going to pay for this, we don't want it to count against our budget. You know, if you're a business, you can't hire people and keep production lines open on that basis. So, the predictability of longer term contracts is the solution to this. If you haven't yet read John Ferrari's piece, I think it's in the hill. He talks about this at some length. It's a serious problem. It's not a problem because of the weapons to Ukraine. It's eminently fixable. And on the timeline on Taiwan, the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines and the director of the CIA, Bill Burns, have both said that the window of maximum vulnerability for a Chinese attack on Taiwan is between now and 2027, which makes the Biden Defense Department's budget all the more mysterious because they are cutting people and platforms until 2035 and spending money on research and development for weapons that they won't start buying until 2035. And that's well outside the window that the intelligence community is saying we ought to be worried about. So uh, I don't mean to add to your worries, Damon, but that's the piece of it that's keeping me up at night.
2: Well, that's all right. I'm used to feeling this (laughs) way.
0: Aren't we all? Linda, so there was a period, say 10 years ago, when everybody was convinced that China – really was the wave of the future, that, uh, you know, there were even some prominent American columnists who, you know, fantasized about, you know, fixing our climate policies and other things by being China for a day, meaning, you know, well, we don't have that pesky Congress to deal with, and we can just get things done the way they do over there. Now, we see a lot of the tremendous weaknesses, and many of those are attributable to Well, they're attributable to the rotten and corrupt system, but Xi Jinping in particular has been more autocratic even than his immediate predecessors. And he's done some things that really have made China weaker, like, you know, refusing to buy Western vaccines against COVID and then, you know, leaving huge numbers of the elderly vulnerable uh, and these, these awful, you know, complete zero COVID policies that involve terrible lockdowns. The vast surveillance system and the social credits, the increasing control of the economy. So one of the things that's obviously, you know, brought all of these millions of Chinese out of poverty is that they've loosened up on the government control of the economy. But now Xi Jinping wants to bring it back. He wants to practically distribute little red books called Xi Jinping Thought. And I'm not kidding. They're really doing that in the schools. They may not be little red books, but pretty close. So respond, if you will, to all of that. Isn't he actually weakening, right? but while strengthening himself in his personal power, isn't he weakening the country?
4: Well, he clearly is weakening the country and the country's economy. I mean, they're, you know, the Congress that is meeting now puts out, as all communist countries do, their various plans for economic growth. And China is going to fall short uh, in that area. A lot of it does have to do with COVID in their particular response to COVID, which was draconian and uh, hurt their economy. But, you know, even in the military area, I, I was actually quite heartened by an article that I read in the Wall Street Journal. It's out, I guess, uh, today by Alistair Gale. It's called China's is Catching Up to the U.S. Is it Ready to Fight? And I had never really thought about this. But the point that Gale makes in this article is that China has not actually had much of an actual war uh, experience. The last time was in 1979 with a brief uh, conflict with Vietnam and You compare that to the United States, and we have been pretty much in constant wars, uh, certainly since the Vietnam era. And the whole article is about the military. They've got, obviously, you know, they've produced this hypersonic missile, which we don't apparently yet have. They like what was being described by Corian on the United States and the Biden administration, sort of focusing on missile systems and looking far out into the future, but sort of missing what's Right in front of their face and in front of China's face is that they have a very big military, but apparently it's a military that may not be nearly as uh, agile nor uh, have as much experience in war fighting, uh, certainly than the United States does. So I, you know, I found that somewhat heartening. I found the article somewhat heartening in what it was describing. Corey can correct uh, any mistakes that uh, I may have made in, uh, in describing this or in Gail's description of the Chinese military. I actually think that we do need to be worried about what China and certainly Xi Jinping's ambitions are with Taiwan. But We also have to remember that, you know, like Ukraine, Taiwan being able to defend itself and having its own territory threatened, you know, it's not nearly as easy to invade and take over countries as some autocrats seem to believe. And and certainly that is one of the lessons that we're learning in Ukraine, that the Russians are learning uh, in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, Bill Galston, how about that? I mean, doesn't the Ukraine experience... Shouldn't it serve as a, as a cautionary tale for Beijing? Look, you know, as Linda points out, you know, that first of all, their army hasn't really fought in an incredibly long time, certainly within the lifetimes of almost everybody in the military. And of course, the example of, of Ukraine shows just how tough it can be when your opponent fights back. Also, Taiwan is already, I mean, I'm sure it's true what Corey has said and Damon has reminded us of that, you know, we need more arms, but I think Taiwan is pretty highly armed already. They describe it as their porcupine strategy. I don't know. Am I being too optimistic to think that actually the experience of Ukraine makes Taiwan a little safer rather than the opposite? I do think you're being too optimistic. Okay. In
3: Ukraine, we're seeing the fruits, among other things, of eight years of intense military cooperation uh, and training. Uh, Ukraine's adoption of bottom-up rather than top-down command structures, their adaptation of tactics on the battlefield corresponding to that, that didn't happen by accident, and it didn't happen fast. I'm not going to masquerade as an expert on Taiwan's military, but having tracked this issue a little bit, there is a robust debate as to whether, A, Taiwan has the kind of weapons that it really needs to turn itself into the now proverbial porcupine, and secondly, whether they have a structure of military mobilization and training that's going to provide them uh, with the kind of fighting force that they're going to need to repel a Chinese invasion across the Straits. My understanding is that we haven't yet quite made the sale. We haven't quite convinced the Taiwanese government that they need to make a big pivot, on both the manpower and personnel front and on the equipment and weaponry front. I heard a very good speech delivered a few days ago uh, by Representative Mike Gallagher to the Heritage Foundation. I don't spend a lot of my time listening to speeches addressing Heritage Foundation audiences, but this one was worth listening to. And Gallagher made two points. First of all, We do not at this point as a country, the United States, have the Navy that we really need in order to do what the American people expect our Navy to do in the case of a Chinese blockade, namely help the Taiwanese break the blockade. He added on that point that the lead time for additions to our naval forces is so long that it's way outside what's become known as the Davidson window, that five-year period of maximum vulnerability that starts now and extends through 2027. So, he said, and this made a lot of sense to me, we can't rely on a Navy. So what we need to rely on and build up is an anti-Navy. The ability of Taiwan to strike against opposing naval forces, and create prohibitive costs for either a full naval blockade, which would be an act of war, according to international law, or a cross-straits invasion. That we probably could do in a couple of years if we started right now and went flat out. And I think that's Taiwan's best hope, because... I do not believe that Xi Jinping is going to allow his third term to terminate without having become the great reunifier of the Chinese nation and its great Rejuvenator.
0: One of the worrisome things is that he has adopted this term, the Great Helmsman, which was used by Mao. Mouse. Yeah, Corey. Let's let's close with this. I can imagine uh, maybe not that many listeners to beg to differ, but some might be listening to all this and hearing ka-ching, ka-ching. These people they want to spend so much money, you know, sending arms to Ukraine and sending arms to Taiwan. Why is this important to the American national interest? What would you say to them?
1: It's important to American national interest because if we allow the international order to become one where strong states can be predatory, that they can invade their neighbors with impunity, we will have to actually spend more money and fight more wars to restore an international order where we and others are safe and prosperous. It's a small price we are paying to arm Ukrainians to do the fighting that will reduce the Russian military and restore the principle that state boundaries should only change by negotiation, not by the use of force. And. If we had to do the fighting to restore this, or if we had to live in an international environment in which this was routinely happening, Taiwan would be at risk, South Korea would be at risk, Poland would be at risk, the Baltic states would be at risk. And so preserving a beneficial order is actually a lot more cost effective than having to restore it.
0: I'd like to turn to our quick third segment. We had such fun uh, a few weeks ago with a segment where we talked about something about ourselves. This time, I want to go around the horn and ask people, what was the best book that you've read this year? Damon Linker.
2: Well, it's actually a book. I'm about uh, two-thirds through now, so you know maybe it'll take a bad turn and I'll take it back. But uh, at the moment, it's quite good. This is a a book. It's not new. It's from about six years ago um, by an author named Daniel Oppenheimer uh, titled Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century. So when it says exit right, it means exiting the left for the right, not leaving the right. Uh, And the six people that the author looks at are Whitaker Chambers, James Burnham, Ronald Reagan, Norman Podoretz, David Horowitz, and Christopher Hitchens. An interesting group of people. Uh, and Only one of whom is
0: completely crazy. I know.
2: I know. But, but uh, he, the, he focuses on Horowitz uh, at his moment of least craziness, uh, okay. kind of in a brief period when he broke from the left and hadn't yet gone full right wing. Okay, (laughs) A lot of psychological depth to the book. Very good also just portraits of the six of them and uh, the details of what they were writing and doing when they were on the left. And in each case, what it was that led them to lose their faith uh, in their commitments. So as someone myself who's wandered about a bit across the spectrum in my career and adult life, uh, I I like books like this, and this is a particularly well-done one. So I recommend it.
1: Thank you. Corey? I think my favorite I have read this year is by the veteran, Elliot Ackerman. And it was a book, a memoir called The Fifth Act. And it intersperses three stories. One, his policy criticism of the 9-11, post 9-11 wars. Second, a family vacation he is on in interrupted by him and so many other veterans of the Afghan and Iraq wars, scrambling when the Biden administration abandons Afghanistan in August of 2021 to try and get Afghans who had helped the American military out of the country. And the third story it interweaves are his recollections of combat and how those connect the other two pieces of the story. It's so powerful. It's so poignant. We're living through a renaissance of veteran writers in the United States. And Elliot Ackerman's one of the best.
4: Excellent. Linda. Well, I'm going to take an entirely different turn as listeners of the podcast that you referred to earlier know about me. I spend more time reading literature than I do public policy and my favorite book that I've uh, read recently was a book that was totally unknown to me by an author that was barely known to me, and that was The Brothers Ashkenazi by I.J. Singer. Isaiah Joshua Singer is the less well-known older brother of Isaac Bashevis Singer, who won the Nobel Prize in 1978. It has a lot of themes, including themes of faith and commerce and revolution. It is about two brothers um, who are sort of the biblical references, I think would be Jacob and Esau, or maybe Cain and Abel. There's a sibling rivalry between the two. And it takes place in the city of Rouge, Poland, which was at the late 19th century, early 20th century, a textile. A Mecca, a place where textiles were produced uh, in Poland, it deals with capitalism. There are scenes uh, of the Bolshevik uh, re- revolution in Russia, lots of inter-family kinds of uh, rivalry going on, and uh, a lot about the Jewish faith and the move away from traditional Jewish faith to secularism. And in the background of all of it is one of the most compelling stories of the pogroms that took place uh, in that era and in that region that I have ever read. So I just found it a fascinating novel, a novel that is underappreciated. It was published in 1937, was a New York Times, bestseller at the time. And it has been favorably compared to Tolstoy's War and Peace. Wow. Okay. Bill Galston.
3: In my former life, I was a college professor. And in that capacity, I compiled reading lists. So I'm going to ask and answer the following question. Suppose you wanted to learn everything that a very well-informed citizen needed to know about the current state of the Republican Party and how it got to be that way. You would read three superb books, Number one, Matt Continenti's 100-year history of conservatism and the right in this country. Number two, Tim Alberta's superbly reported big book called American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump, which really focuses on the past 10 or 15 years. And finally, you would read a book by Nicole Hemmer, uh, that focuses on the 1990s and really tells a revelatory story about how many of the themes that now dominate the Republican Party were being developed and road tested by defectors, Republican defectors from Reagan orthodoxy in the 1990s. Of course, Pat Buchanan is a major figure in that discussion, but he's far from the only one. What's happening now, Nicole instructs us, is no accident. It is the logical extension of trends that should have been more visible in
0: the 1990s to journalists and scholars than they were Okay, thank you. I will cite two books, also not new books. One I was first introduced uh, to when I was in high school, believe it or not, but it it is uh, it's a classic. It's called *The Worldly Philosophers* by Robert Heilbroner, and I recently reread it. All right, brace yourselves. It's a history of economic thought. I know how dull that makes it sound, and it could not be the – it really is fascinating. It's a series of portraits of individuals with all their quirks and their funny personality traits and their interactions with one another and also their, their thoughts. It's one of those books that um, has stood the test of time. There have been a number of different editions that have come out over the years. And um, if you want to understand a little bit about economics and how economic insights have changed and also get some great personal stories like Thorsten Veblen, Returning a Lady's Pantyhose or Stockings in the Middle of the Night, I mean, all kinds of fun little details. So highly recommend The Worldly Philosophers and then a little darker note, but I went through a period in my adolescence where I read everything I could on uh, the Holocaust. And for some reason, I skipped over uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William L. Shirer, uh, which I did read this year. And it is such a fantastic work of history. I really can't say enough about it. I mean, it is, uh, it's is—it's riveting. It's incredibly well reported. He was there. Yeah, he spent was- fluent in in Germany, was a correspondent uh, in in Germany, met Hitler several times, and his on-the-ground report of how it all happened, including things like, you know, how did this relative nobody rise the way he did? And, you know, he couldn't have done it without support from wealthy industrialists and others who had their reasons. You know, they were worried about the communists, which, you know, it's not crazy to be worried about communists, but you don't embrace fascists. In any event, it's a brilliant, brilliant work of history. I highly recommend it. All right, we're running long, so we're going to have to rush through our highlights or lowlights of the week. And I will start with Linda Chavez. I'm going to go
4: to something that I've been doing recently, which is both a highlight and a lowlight all wrapped up into one. And it is an article that appeared on the NBC News webpage in their Think, Opinion, Analysis, and Essays. It's an article by Dennis Aftergut. And it's all about the collapse of the Durham investigation. As uh, listeners probably know, John Durham, who was the uh, former federal prosecutor who was made a special counsel to investigate the origins of the Russia investigation into the campaign in 2016. This week, uh, Mr. Durham was handed a second defeat in court when a jury uh, acquitted the second person charged, um, Igor Danchenko. And I thought the article was a very interesting one. And it uh, makes the point that uh, the Durham investigation really was never about getting to the bottom of what happened in 2016. It became a kind of political vendetta And uh, that
0: doesn't make for good prosecutions. Okay, thank you. Bill Galston. This one is a no
3: brainer, and it sort of closes the loop with Mona's opening. About a week ago, a British publication I can't remember whether it was a tabloid or a television station displayed two pictures. One was of then Prime Minister Liz Truss, and the other was of a head of lettuce. And the question was posed. (laughs) Which one of these will last
0: longer? (laughs) And we know the answer, the lettuce one. (laughs) Yes, well, okay, Uh, Damon Linker.
2: Well, at, at the risk of a change of tone, um, those who uh, subscribe to my Substack uh, are aware that uh, my father died about three weeks ago, uh, and I, I took a, uh, that's why I was missing from the podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago. And in light of that, I want to highlight uh, a podcast that uh, was brought to my attention by a friend who knew that I was going through grieving, uh, and it's truly remarkable by Anderson Cooper, the CNN talking head uh, journalist titled uh, All There Is. And you can find it on CNN, probably on many other platforms. It's uh, a reflection on grief and death and coping with these things. Uh, Anderson Cooper's mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, died about three years ago. He has other uh, much more traumatic deaths in his past. All the episodes are excellent, but the second episode where Stephen Cole there as a guest is 50 minutes of the most, some of the most profound thinking and talking on this subject that I have ever heard. And I'm someone who went to graduate school for philosophy, political philosophy, and have read a lot of books about things related to death. Colbert is a remarkably deep and thoughtful man, and the openness and vulnerability that the two of them display on this podcast episode is something I've never heard before. So I I urge it in the strongest terms to any and all people, because all of us have to grieve at some point in our lives. And, we need to think and talk more about it in honest ways. And so praise be to Anderson Cooper and Colbert for doing such a great job of it on this podcast.
0: Thank you so much for that. Of course, condolences, which we've expressed privately already, but also I want to commend the piece uh, that you wrote, the eulogy for your dad, which was very beautiful and I enjoyed very much.
1: Okay, Corey. Low light of the week is uh, Iran sending Quds Force troops to Crimea to operate drones, suicide drones, as they're being called in the media, against Ukraine. What this demonstrates is that Russia doesn't have the ability to operate the drones, so one more deficiency of the Russian military, and it doesn't have drones of their own. They're having to rely on Iranians. Second, this is a very dangerous move by Iran to be a fighting force on Russia's side in Ukraine and is likely to not only kill whatever meager prospects there were for a return to the nuclear agreement, but will make Iran, who is already in violation of a UN Security Council resolution for providing the drums, a direct participant in the war, and that's going to have a whole lot of repercussions.
0: Thank you for that. Okay, I would like to draw attention to a story from Texas. Apparently, in the wake of the Uvalde massacre, the Texas legislature, unable to do anything about the availability of firearms, decided to pass legislation that sends to every parent of a school child in Texas a kit so that the parents can take the children's DNA and have it available in the event that their beloved children are murdered at school. So now in Texas, every year, I guess in September, you know, you get the kids ready for school by getting them a new backpack and uh, maybe some sneakers and, uh, you know, their books. And uh, you you take a DNA swab in case their brains are blown out in the classroom. I think this is just such an example of defining deviancy down, of accepting the unacceptable and saying, well, we're just going to have to live with it. I just cannot get my mind around how distorted your thinking has to be for that to be how you're coping with the problem of gun violence. With that, I would like to very much thank our distinguished guest, Corey Shockey, who I will repeat is the nicest big shot in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Thank you for that nice compliment. And uh, I want to thank all of our regulars. I want to thank our... Sound engineer Jason Brown, our producer Katie Cooper, all of our listeners, of course, and we will return next week as every week.